0: Gospel with Dr. Helissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Good to see you all jumping on board here. It's a beautiful day here. Uh, beautiful day outside, but this is what we're going to do. We'll just kind of go through this week's newsletter, which is about the footsteps of Messiah and how torifying they can be. Right? We have no idea how torifying we are when we're obedient to the commandments. We have no idea how torifying we are when we keep the commandments because we love Yeshua. So we want to go through that. And so in last week's lesson which again, it was the question was, how far gone is the night? And of course, the night represents the exile. And so we looked at some markers, say, well, exactly how far into this exile are we? Are we close to sunup? Is perhaps the sun already breaking? Maybe it's not completely up, but maybe we can see some streaks of light in the sky. And the particular set of verses we worked with It was from Isaiah 21, 11 through 12. And I I showed you that in couplets, couplets, because when you see the couplets, you can see the, not just the, the literary couplet, but you can see the shadow in the second part of the couplet that helps you to understand that this prophecy, it does have something to do with the exile in Babylon and how far gone that night of exile might be. And then when you see that there's a mirror of that, then you realize it could be talking about another exile. And we know that we're still in that particular exile. When the Roman Empire, when the Red Beast sent the the Jews into that final exile, they've been scattered out and all Israel's pretty much scattered, except those who may have begun coming back since it was possible to go back to the land itself now many died trying to get to the land many were turned away you know and in, in the time i hate to even use the word uh, i don't want to give him credit i don't want to keep you know an antichrist's name alive i don't know why we make so many movies and tv shows and things like that commemorating the life of an antichrist so i'm not even going to honor him by speaking his name but during that period Uh, around the time of World War II, many ships were turned back that could have taken Jews to safety in the land of Israel. So that's, that's a great price that many of them paid with that desire to go into the land, with that desire to go, you know, get ready for Messiah to return. And, you know, we honor that memory. And so we could see at that point, because you had so many Jews beginning to go back to the land that that gate was opened after World War II, that, yes, it looks like there is a dawn breaking. Is this the last dawn? Will there be light from now on when Messiah returns? Uh, I believe so, but we don't know. There, there could be another cycle that we're not seeing yet. We'll always leave that, that gate open, right? Uh, Messiah can explain it to us when he comes, but until then, it looks as though the pattern in scripture is going to be in doubles, as it concerns the prophecies of exile, and that's why you see in this passage here the pronouncement concerning Edom. One keeps calling to me from Seir. That's two ways of saying the same thing. Edom and Seir are the same thing. And then the axis of it, Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? right? That's the exact same phrase. It's just doubled. So the clue there is, hey, there will be the end of one exile, but we should also be checking into the end of another exile, an exile that we know we're in. The watchman says, morning comes, but also night. In other words, yes, if you're, if you're asking me how far gone is the night, there will be a morning to this first exile from Babylon. But he says, also the night, also there's going to be another exile. But if you would inquire, inquire. In other words, inquire about the end of the first exile. You know, this is what Isaiah is prophesying of, the Babylonian exile, but a Babylonian exile yet to come, which we will see in the beast kingdom of Rome. Remember, it's one image, four beasts, one image. So he says, if you would inquire, inquire, two exiles, come back again. (laughs) You will be back again. Right. And so that that third couplet where it says, come back again, he's telling us that, yeah, you really do need to keep in mind that there will be a second exile. And this is going to be a long one. It's going to be much longer than the first exile uh, because it's been about 2000 years now, uh, almost 2000 years. Yeah. since the the exile of the red one, which is Edom of Seir. And um, it's as though between the time of Messiah Yeshua and today that he's been hiding. He's not been easily seen. In fact, you you really have to seek him. That's what scripture says. You'll seek me and you'll find me. When you search for me with all your heart, you have to look for him. And if you will start looking for him, of course, he will reveal himself to you. But in this concealment, that's what we want to talk about today. How is he concealed? Why is he concealed? Why did he have to go away? Why couldn't he just do what, you know, the Jews wanted him to do in the first century, which is conquer Rome and instate the messianic kingdom on earth. Why didn't he do it then? You know, we'd be 2000 in to a messianic kingdom. (laughs) Well, that just didn't fit the paradigm, number one. (laughs) But there were some things he needed to do. He needed to prepare a place for us, but he needed to be hidden for a particular purpose because it was his disciples who needed to carry out the next step. In terms of execution, he passes that commission on to them, I believe, for a particular reason. And we'll take a look at that today. But this this passage here in Isaiah, if you would inquire, inquire, come back again. It's like there's two comings, right? Not only two exiles, but two inquiries. And this come back again, it helps us to understand, I think, this layer of Jewish understanding about King Messiah's hiding place. Now, of course, from the Jewish point of view, they don't believe that Messiah has come yet. Clearly, we believe he has, uh, that he has come and he will return. He will come back again. But it's helpful to read some of the things that they derive from scripture about King Messiah, because maybe we've missed those things. I don't know, again, if if the average person on the street, if we were evangelizing and we were trying to lead them to salvation in Messiah Yeshua, and they said, well, why did he leave? I don't know. I'd have a great answer for that. I mean, I'd have some answers, but I don't know that I have a great answer that would just settle all doubt. So there's a mysterious aspect to why King Messiah has kind of been hidden away for the last 2,000 years. And in this Jewish way of looking at things, it's not just those who are in exile who are calling out, who are anxious for this night of exile to end. They say, so is Messiah. They say Messiah is anxious For the exile to end. In other words, he wants to be loosed. He wants to be set free so that he can begin to instate the the Davidic reign uh, to begin to restore the earth. He's anxious for the exile to end. So he's also inquiring of the Father Father, how far gone is the night? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? And Yeshua said, no man knows the day or the hour. It's just the father who's in heaven. So evidently, he's, he's even concealed it from Yeshua. He he probably knows how it will play out, right? Uh, does he know to the, the day and the hour? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But the implication is uh, he's just awaiting. Even if he knew the time, he's just sitting there waiting for the word, go, go get him. Right. So there's an interesting little midrash about this weight that King Messiah, he's waiting with us. And it's really interesting. But the thing to remember about midrash, if you don't know anything about Jewish literature, when you read the midrash, don't read it as something that you're supposed to believe is true. Right. That you're supposed to believe is somehow extra scripture. It's not It's usually an illustrative story. They're telling a story or giving an example to help you understand a principle. And in this case, they're trying to kind of unpack this passage in Isaiah where it's Watchman, How Far Gone Is the Night? The, The inquiry is how much longer is this exile? And so they say. Where is Messiah right now? Where is King Messiah? What is he doing right now? We can't see him; he's hidden from us. What's he doing? And the midrash, and remember, it's an illustrative story. Well, they say he's at the gates of Rome, and why Rome? Well, because that's who's named in the passage in Isaiah. Edom and Seir are thought, in modern times, or from the time of the Roman Empire, to have been Rome. And if you've looked at that YouTube video. A brief history of the beast that we did several months ago, it helps trace for you, well, how do they come to think that that Rome was Edom? It'll trace that for you, help historically to do that. But for now, let's just say, okay, they're right, that Edom and Sitir, they are Rome, the Roman Empire, the last beast kingdom, and all its systems. We don't want to single out a religious system. That would be foolish. We don't want to single out a political system. That would be foolish. We don't want to single out a a sports system, a military system, a medical system. These are all systems of the beast, but we don't want to isolate one system and say that's the beast, because often there's some good things going on within that system. There's uh, the temptation though is to blur the edges, and to begin to put faith in the system instead of the the Holy One who created us. And so often these systems can be turned into something that's that's fairly beneficiary into something that's pretty evil in the long run. At the end of the day, though, um, Rome, Edom, Seir. Well, they say King Messiah is hidden outside the gates of Rome. And uh, of course, in their day and time, uh, Rome would have been, uh, there would have been one particular system of Rome that would have been very troublesome to them because they were being persecuted by that particular religious system of Rome. Um, history has changed a little over 2000 years and in some case we've regressed. And in some cases there's, there's been some, I believe, some real achievements. However, the two at this point still don't mix very well. Uh, At any rate, they say King Messiah, he's also sitting outside the gates of Rome. And he's out there with all the other sick people. He's out there with the rest of Israel. We're all sitting at the gates of Rome. So you can see the danger there. If you're sitting outside the gates of Rome, you're not really a part of Rome, but you're so close. You're really, really close. You could just cross over the gate and then all of a sudden you would be within the system of the beast. You'd be in, in, within the, the control of the gates of Rome because that's what gates represent, not just um, judgment, but also control. If you control the gates of a city, you control the whole city. So they're at the gates. They've got the potential to either move into the gates of Rome or move out. And what they're doing is kind of funny sounding. The rabbis say in this, this illustrative story, well, what are they doing out there? They're tying and untying their bandages. They're sick. They're all sick. Israel's outside the gates of Rome and they're all sick. They have all kinds of sicknesses. They have the diseases of the Egyptians. Um, They have leprosy. They have tzahat, leprosy. And King Messiah is out there with them. They say that's where he is. He's hidden, but he's not really hidden. He's just sitting there among Israel. And just like them, he's tying and untying bandages. And just like Israel, he's anxiously awaiting the father's appointed time for his return to come back again, as Isaiah is talking about. What's interesting is about these sick people out here. Yes, they're sick. Not a great thing because it represents a spiritual sickness, um, a soul sickness. But the good news is they're outside the gates of Rome. They're not inside. So they have not been completely incorporated into the system of the beast. They recognize that they're sick. And so they're tying and untying bandages. They're they're doing the best they can. And what's this based on? If we go back to our text in the Song of Songs in chapter three, where the beloved... She says, on my bed night after night, I sought the one whom my soul loves. She couldn't find him. She had to get up and go about the city, the holy city. She had to find the watchman of the night to help her to understand that he could be found if she would get back into that cycle of the feasts. She already has a relationship with him. She knows who her beloved is. She's just not able to embrace him to the extent that she knows she must until she goes and she checks with the night watchman. And so once she encounters the night watchman, the people who circle in the watches of the night, in the night of the exile, they know the appointed times and no sooner does she leave them than it says she finds him. She finds King Messiah. She embraces him and she takes him to the chamber of her mother who conceived her. And we can look at what is that representing? It's going to represent the Mishkan, the tabernacle, ultimately. But these folks, yes, they're sick. They're they're definitely, we can't look at them and say, oh, they've been perfected in faith. They haven't. We haven't. But we're not inside the gates of Rome. And we're still asking, when is he coming? When is he coming? And they say, King Messiah is sitting there too, tying and untying bandages. When am I going? When am I going? When am I going? Look at all these sick people. Well, they say this traces back to Deuteronomy 28, 58. Deuteronomy 28, 58. These are covenant keepers, by the way. This is not really dealing with like the totally wicked people out there. This is dealing with Israel, with covenant people. They have a covenant identity, children of Abraham. And they say this sickness that Messiah is tending to goes back to this prophecy right here in Deuteronomy 28, 58. And Moses says, if you are not careful, To observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. Wow, that's strong. That's heavy miserable and chronic sicknesses, right? So it it has more to do not with individuals at this point, but it kind of has to do with the whole nation of Israel, that they're being judged in a sense on how as a nation they have observed the words of the Torah. And if they're not obedient to the words of Torah, then the sicknesses they have are going to be terrifying. You see the, the kind of the, the small group of people that are being dealt with here as you compare them to all the people groups of the world. He's saying this is going to be the result. You sign your name to the dotted line here as part of the covenant. But if you depart from the covenant, expect to be sick as a nation. And so this is they believe what's meant by being on that sick bed, seeking him night after night, but not being able to find it and embrace him. You have a relationship, but no embrace. And just like, you know, a lot of us, how did we get farther into the Torah? We said to ourselves one day, there must be something more. This is not wholeness. I know Yeshua, he's my savior, but I don't feel as though I'm embracing him in the, in the way that I should. How do I do that? And so we got up and we walked about Until we found someone who could explain the feast to us in the appointed times. And once we found King Messiah there, we embraced him and we're not letting go. We're not letting go. (laughs) Now that we found him, we are not letting go. He can't shake us at this point. But that's going to be the penalty, he says. If you depart from this Torah, then you can expect to be torified. That's what's going to happen. And then in Isaiah 53, if we bump forward a chapter or two uh, from our text, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, we're told this, and this is kind of where the rabbis are getting the, you know, the Israel and, and King Messiah are sitting around the gates of Rome, tying and untying bandages. They're sick. Well, how is Yeshua sick? Because we know he's the living word. How can he be sick? Well, they say this way, according to Isaiah 53, 4, it says, surely our griefs, and in some of your translations, it might say sicknesses, which is a better translation of it, because the Hebrew word there is choli, choli, chol, um, like choli is sick. Um, the Beit Cholim in Israel, that's a hospital, that's where all the sick people go. So surely our sicknesses. Our choli, he himself bore. In other words, on Yeshua, on the Messiah, that's where our sicknesses went. And that's why they say he's also sitting at the gate of Rome. He's bearing our sicknesses. That's why he's tying and untying bandages. These are not his sicknesses, they've just been put on him. He carried. It says our sorrows, he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken smitten of God and afflicted. See, he's sitting right out there with the sick people in this midrash because he also has been stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, just like Israel, even though he never departed from the word, we did. And so he's sitting there and sharing uh, with us. He is taking upon himself the heaviness of our sickness. It says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. In other words, he doesn't deserve to be sitting out there with a bunch of sick people like us, but there he is, helping us to tie and untie bandages. And he's tying his and untying his, like, look what you did to me. But I love you. I did this for you. He says, by his scourging, we are healed of these sicknesses. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Well, see, he never turned. He never sinned. He never departed from the Torah. He never broke the covenant. But we did. And so our sickness fell on him. And so that little midrash, that strange little story about Yeshua, tying and untying bandages, and they say that he does not tie and untie the bandages the way that the other Israelites do. They say that, (laughs) and again, this is an illustrative story, they'll take off all their bandages at once, clean their wounds, and then wrap them up with fresh bandages again. But they say King Messiah, he never unties all the bandages at once. If he takes a bandage off, he cleans the wound, and then he ties it back up. And then if he comes over here and he helps this person with their wound, he'll take the bandage off, clean the wound, tie it back up. And they say, this is a a way of understanding that Messiah never would want to take all the bandages off at one time. Because what if he gets the command to go? It's time, like, come again. It's time to go. Well, he doesn't want to waste time. (laughs) Dealing with bandages. You don't be out here in a tangle of mummy bandages with all these sick Israelites. He wants to go instantly because he's the healing word. And so they say he only do one at a time. And that way it'll be quick. He can he can execute the commandment to go quickly. At any rate, we, we kind of get what the story is trying to say to us. He is there. It's he's not really missing an action. He's just hidden away at the gates of Rome. That's where he's hiding. And he's taking upon himself in this process the sicknesses and the sorrows and the iniquities of those who turn to him. And and think of this, and and this will break your heart. How many of us have been saved? How many of us have we been saved? We understood what sin was, and then we kept on sinning. We just kept on going because somebody told us grace will cover all that. Well, yes, it will. But why are you making Yeshua tie and untie more bandages? Just because you don't want to discipline yourself not to sin. And that's the the message here, is he's working. Even though he's hidden, he's actually working. And so we need to appreciate that and not make him work harder than he's working already. If he's taking our griefs and sorrows upon us, upon him, then we need to quit piling on. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> he's already saved us. We should be learning what it takes to please Adonai in his word. We shouldn't be piling on more just because, you know, we, we don't discern the blood of Yeshua. Um, so. To these first-century Jews who were looking for a Messiah to deliver them from the beast empire of Rome, think about this vision. I mean, just reading the description there of, of tying and untying bandages and all these sick people and people with leprosy and all this stuff that he's taking upon himself. This was not the most appealing version of Messiah. You know, if you're if you're subjugated by Rome. And the Messiah comes on the scene, and he's lowly, and he's humble, and he's riding on a donkey, and he doesn't have a place to lay his head. And people are chasing him out of the cities. Um, If they're calling him a blasphemer, he's not the most appealing version of Messiah that they were hoping for, right? They want the King David. David. They don't want the Mashiach ben Yosef. They don't want the suffering servant. They want the conquering king. But we're no different. Because, see, Yeshua is trying to tell them about his two aspects. The suffering servant first, but then the conquering king second. And, and they're not really wanting to accept his hiddenness between here and here. And they didn't have to. You know, the course of history could have been much different had they all said, Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai, had the whole nation welcomed him, but they didn't. So many rejected him. Many accepted, but many rejected, and that gave him more time to get the rest of those lost sheep that he's talking about. We are all like sheep. We've gone astray. We've gone our own way. He says, "I'm going to go get them. If they want to come home, I'm going to show them how to get home." But we're kind of the same way. We we all want the kingdom promises. We all want the kingdom blessings. Uh, we want the riches of the kingdom. We don't want to be sick. Uh, You can't possibly be sick. You know, Yeshua took all this for you. But if Yeshua is sitting among the sick people (laughs) while while he's hidden, that tells you there will be some sick people. The most important thing is to heal the soul sickness, to become a better disciple of Yeshua, to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. And when we find out that sometimes it pleases him when we suffer, what? Yeah. That's why we have the Feast of Passover. So we eat the bread of affliction. That's why we have fasts like Yom Kippur. So we'll learn to afflict our souls in order to become better disciples. Because what we find out that when we do afflict our souls for the sake of the kingdom, It just feels like we're dying, but we're not really. There's just something inside us that needed to. There was something that could be healed that we wouldn't have to be wrapping bandages around it anymore. If we just discipled our souls. We don't like the word discipline. So just start saying disciple. I'm going to disciple my soul today. I'm going to disciple myself today. It sounds way easier than I'm disciplining yourself. You just need a little self-discipline. No, we just need a little self-discipleship. Right? Right? So we can't just claim all this prosperity of kingdom promises. And we have to understand how so few do want to claim the suffering and the sorrow that precedes it. We want to have a big time at Passover and have a great feast. But we don't always want to do the spiritual work that accompanies it. We don't. There's not a lot of people who want to live obediently in such a manner that they would make straight the paths of Messiah among the wilderness of the people. see if we can make the path straight. then imagine Messiah wants to come back. How long? <laughs> Keep inquiring, come back again. don't quit asking. <laughs> but we're among the wilderness of the peoples right now. and Messiah needed to be hidden away. And for this window of time between he when he was hidden away, when he was taken up in the cloud, and when he will return in like manner, he'll come back in the cloud, there was something that needed to be done. And it was discipleship. Remember, he chose 12 disciples, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, which were scattered abroad. In fact, that's how the Apostle James opens his letter. He says, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So those 12 tribes of Israel, they were scattered out to the four corners of the earth, they need to to be discipled, they need to be brought in, and those who are going to be grafted in with them. Yeshua does not leave, And, and we can compare this to Isaac. You know, there's a couple, there's twin stories with Abraham and Isaac. Abraham went down to Egypt, and he said to Sarah, say, you're my sister, because there was famine in the land. Well, when famine hits the land in the time of Isaac, he does not leave the land of Israel. He still says to Rebekah, say, so you're my sister, but he doesn't leave the land itself. Because when Abraham offered him up on Mount Moriah, when he was lifted up, he became a consecrated Olah offering. And once he was offered up, now he had a, a status of holiness. He became Kadosh, consecrated in that land. And so, like Isaac, he wasn't going to leave it. Once he was offered up on the cross, I believe he became like he was telling uh, Miriam, "Quit holding on to me. You can't. You can't be holding on to me. <laughs> you know, we're in a graveyard here. <laughs> I'm holy at this point. I, I have a level of holiness that's elevated. And so, uh, while he is waiting, you know, we say, well, he went down to Egypt when he was a baby." But once he was offered up, did he leave the land? The only place we have any evidence he went was up into that realm that hovers just above the land of Israel known as the Garden of Eden. So I don't think Miriam knew what garden she was in uh, when she encounters him. Uh, but he is waiting for us now that he's been offered up and he is waiting for us to accept him as our salvation. He is waiting for us to be sanctified in his word. And part of this idea of being hidden away has to do with uh, a play on word with uh, the direction of north. And you know, if you've read the Psalms, uh, sometimes it'll refer to the sides of the north as Jerusalem being located in the sides of the north. That actually means the hindmost part Of the north and the hindmost part of the north, that that starting point there would be Jerusalem. And then if you go north from Jerusalem, then that's north. But the hindermost part or the side of the north is Jerusalem itself. That's the plumb line. Jerusalem is always the plumb line in scripture. And it says that Jerusalem is the, the, the most beautiful, beautifully situated location, the joy of the whole earth. But they say this is also a comparison to Joseph who was also very fair. He was a he was a handsome man. They say that just like Joseph was hidden away, so that so will Mashiach ben Yosef, or Messiah the son of Joseph the suffering servant aspect of Messiah, that he is also going to be hidden and they'll say in the north. And what they're doing there is they're using a, not really a play on word uh, but a, a word that has two definitions. Safun in Hebrew is north. Safun in Hebrew is secret or hidden. So we say, is Messiah in the north or is he hidden? Yes. And so in that same psalm, it says, walk around Sion and circle her and count her towers. What does you do? Walk around and circle that's exactly what she did in the Song of Songs. She went out into the holy city and she finds the sovavin, the sova. These are the night watchmen who they circle. They go around and around all night long. They'll go from tower to tower in circling it has to do with the feast, the cycle of the feasts. And they say this refers to the five circles of holiness around Jerusalem. And they say what is hidden is good. And if what is hidden is good, then what is in the north is good, right? And they take that from Psalm thirty-one twenty, which says, how abundant is your goodness that you have hidden away. But see, so you could also translate it as how abundant is your goodness that you have placed in the north. And Rome is considered in the north, by the way. The gates of Rome, the north, all that. Messiah being hidden in the north, being hidden at the gates of Rome. So they say Messiah is good. Therefore, he's in the north. He's hidden. And it's just like the the treasures of the kingdom. If we have good things in this life, Baruch Hashem, that he blessed you with good things. But the real treasures are held for our inheritance in the kingdom. Those things are hidden away. If you have revealed riches, we're glad for you. But we're also praying that, that you have even greater riches hidden away in King Messiah. Because he is goodness. He is tov. He's hidden from sight. What is hidden from us is good at this point. So we have this hidden treasure of salvation, but yet for those who are saved, it's not hidden at all because at some point they sought him out. They inquired, like Isaiah said. And it says, if you would inquire, inquire. Come on back. It makes us think of the days of creation. They were pronounced tov, good, or tov me'od, very good. Well, Yeshua. He is Tov. He is goodness. He is that word of creation that brought forth life from the dark hidden places. So let's look a little bit more at Psalm 31, 13 through 21. And this should encourage you right now, because right now we are in the strife of tongues. In the wilderness, there is a strife of tongues. How do you want to get above that? How do you want to be sheltered from the strife of tongues? Well, this psalm is going to give us some some context. It says, for I have heard the slander of many. Terror is on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they schemed to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant save me in your faithfulness. Let me not be put to shame, Lord, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent in Sheol. Let the lying lips be speechless, which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. There's the goodness that we were talking about, Yeshua. How great is your goodness. Imagine Yeshua praying this on the cross. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have performed for those who take refuge in you before the sons of mankind. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of mankind. See, we don't have to be afraid of conspiracies. We are going to be hidden in the secret place because Yeshua is good and he has stored up goodness for those who fear I don't know. And so we're going to take refuge in him. And it says it's even before the sons of mankind, like they're going to be able to perceive that we have taken refuge in him. They're going to be able to perceive that we are in a secret place. And you say, Well, how is it secret? Somehow it's secret, but yet they can see it, they can perceive it. And I think that maybe the secret in that is like Yeshua when he left, he says, Where I'm going, you can't come, but you will know the way. When it's your time, you will know how to get there. And I think as he reveals himself to us, we will begin to understand this life of obedience and learning what is pleasing to Adonai and discipling ourselves, walking in self-discipleship. And he says, you'll hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of mankind. You don't have to worry about the conspiracies of the beast. He has a secret place for you where they don't know how to get there. You keep them secretly in a shelter. The word there is sukkah. Why don't we celebrate the feast of Sukkot? Because we want to be in a shelter. We want to be in a Sukkot from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown his marvelous faithfulness to me in a besieged city. Jerusalem was the besieged city. That's what we're commemorating tomorrow with the fast. Jerusalem was besieged. It was breached. But you know what? If we're faithful, if we're faithful to him, There's no reason for there to be a breach in the wall tomorrow. If we will stand firm, if we will let him hide us in a secret place of his presence, he will hide us from the conspiracies of mankind that are trying to make breaches in the walls of Jerusalem. And he says, you just you keep Sukkot. You you keep you stick with me through the moment. And I will shelter you from the strife of tongues. You can see it, but you don't have to engage in it. It's like I said before, listen, if you have an audience and the presence of the Holy One, why would you run out there to have a dialogue with a demon? You can rise above it. But that passage in that psalm, that's associated with one of the reasons that Messiah is hidden, that he's in the secret or in the north. He's saving from death because of Adonai's great goodness, because of he's tov. And so we too can be secreted in the secret of the sukkah. We can be saved from the conspiracies of mankind. You just assemble in Jerusalem at the feasts. You say, how can I do that? I can't afford to get there. You just respect those feasts and those feast days. You set those days apart and he'll, he'll figure out the rest. Because see, if you're in the wilderness of the peoples, you probably are going to see a lot of people keeping the feast outside the land. They would maybe be in there if they could get in there but where they are in the wilderness of the peoples. And yes, you will be besieged, just like Jerusalem was besieged. Stand firm, stay in your place, because he is going to be faithful to protect you from this terrifying tribulation of lips. It's called the strife of tongues. You don't have to worry about the beast. Yes, the beast will blaspheme you. Revelation 13, one through six talks about how the beast He's going to come up on the, the out of the seashore and he's going to blaspheme. And people are going to think that he's invincible, that you can't wage war with the beast, that he can't be overcome. And it says a mouth was given to him, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God and to blaspheme, his, blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. Well, that Greek word for tabernacle there, remember, skene, in Hebrew, it's also translated out as ohel, which is the tent, like the ohel moed, the tent of meeting, the mishkan, the tabernacle, and asuka. So what's going on? Are you being blasphemed? Yes. Is Adonai being blasphemed? Yes. Where are you dwelling when all this is going on? Heaven. Doesn't feel like heaven. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Really doesn't how you, it does not matter how you feel, it matters what is written. Why are we terrified when we're the ones who are terrifying? It's the enemy who's afraid of us, he's afraid of us. And so, what has happened when we find Yeshua, especially when we find him in the context of the feasts of Israel, the feasts of the Holy One. We grab him and we don't let him go. Woe to those who find him there and turn loose. What do you say? It's hmm, woe to those who put their hand to the plow and then they turn back. If you have encountered Yeshua, truly encountered Yeshua and the truth of the feasts of Adonai, you better not let him go. You know, even if you've just grabbed him around the ankle... (laughs) And that's all you can do. grab him around the ankle and don't let go. If that's all you can hold on to, grab it. Grab the seat seat. Grab the hem of his garment until you get a, a good grip. And it says, I, she said, and song of songs, three it says, on my bed, night after night, exile after exile, Babylonian exile after Roman exile. I sought him whom my soul loves." My soul loves him. That's the Shema. You shall love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I sought him, but did not find him. I must arise now and go around in the city, in the streets, and in the public squares. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who make the rounds, Hasovavim, just like the rivers of Eden, in the city found me, and I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Hardly had I left him when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house and into the room of her who conceived me, right? So if the Mishkan is the the chamber, the room of her who conceived me, what is going on there? Remember, that's where the presence descended in the wilderness. If you're in the wilderness of the peoples, you take him into the Mishkan. How do you do that? I'm in the wilderness. I don't know where the Mishkan is. Yes, you do. Remember, it was called the Ohel Moed, the Tent of Meeting. What Moedim is it talking about? Passover, Shavuot, Sukkot, Yom Kippur, Feast of Trumpets, First Fruits, Shabbat, all the special offerings they had for the Shabbats. You do know where that chamber is. And remember, that's where the presence of Adonai descended. This is where we get this idea of the clouds of glory in the wilderness, the Sukkot of glory in the wilderness. And there Israel could be hidden from the strife of tongues and conspiracies of the nations around her, as long as she was obedient. If she didn't, bam, she got ejected from the cloud. (laughs) So you go to the penalty box, right? And some of them didn't survive those penalty boxes, and they got spit out of the cloud and stayed out of the cloud. But that's something to remember. We want to stay in the cloud. We want to stay in his presence, that divine presence that descended with him. Just like it was the Holy Spirit that overshadowed so that Mary could conceive Yeshua. It's that same divine presence that hovers over us so that we can conceive good works, have good fruit, produce good fruit in this relationship that we have with the word of Adonai and this relationship that we have with Yeshua. Isaiah 21, 3 through 9 going back to the context of Watchman, how far gone is the night? He says, go station the lookout, have him report what he sees. When he sees a column of chariots, horsemen in pairs, a train of donkeys, a train of camels, he has to pay close attention, very close attention. Then the lookout called, Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower and I am stationed every night at my guard post. Now behold, here come Here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. Wow. Okay. So we see that also in the book of Revelation. We see the horsemen coming out Uh, in pairs. You don't, this is hard to describe without my menorah graphic where you can see the full menorah where it's not just the ground view that we typically see but the top view is set above it like a rainbow and then you can actually see how those it's like Ezekiel's wheels that the lamp actually goes around and around you, you see the physical aspect with a, a you know the common menorah that everybody sees but with the rainbow it gives you the idea of the spirit so that you can see the full cycle of the feasts. You can see the cycle of Passover and Sukkot, because then they come one circle. You can see the how that unleavened bread and how Yom Kippur, they just keep circling. It's a never-ending circle. You can see how uh, first fruits of the barley and the Feast of Trumpets, they circle and circle. They never stop. And you can also see their Shavuot. And as you're overlaying that particular graphic that I have with the four horsemen, then you understand how they would come out in pairs. Because as this first white horse rides out, it would just ride out at Passover. You would also expect to see its pair, same horse, but you're seeing that same mark at Sukkot. You see the red horse here at Unleavened Bread. You're also going to see the red horse there at Yom Kippur. You're going to see the black horse coming out, that first root's the barley. you also see them at the beast of trumpets. And what is the, the source of all of it? The yellow, greenish horse, death, right? Each of those, they're going to bring death in the earth. They're going to be strikes. There's going to be plagues. There's going to be sicknesses. That's the story. And so in the same way that Israel is going to be judged, so is the whole world going to be judged by these horsemen in pairs. And then we hear fallen, fallen is Babylon right fallen at the beginning the first exile and then the last beast kingdom is rome it's the final extension of babylon so babylon's going to fall from its golden head down to its iron and clay feet and so that makes us think again as we're looking at these horses in pair and then also the bugs that come up out of the abyss they also look like horses Revelation 9, 7 through 10 says the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle and on their heads appeared to be crowns of gold and their faces were like human faces. They had hair like the hair of women. Their teeth were like the teeth of lions. Um, The teeth of lions, again, that would make you think of the lion of Babylon. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. That would make you think of Rome. Iron, the iron kingdom was Rome. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots. Typically, your chariots go in pairs, pairs of horses, of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings. And in their tails is the power to hurt people for five months. Uh, there's another passage, too, that uh, describes how they they also have like these tails like serpents. So be serpents and scorpions. Serpents and scorpions, they're incorporated into this horse imagery of the hell bugs. Well, here's a footnote to help us understand why we need to be in the cloud, why we need to be in that secret place away from the strife of tongues. Exodus forty thirty eight says, for the cloud of Adonai would be on the tabernacle by day and fire would be on it by night. The Midrash to that says the nations of the world would witness this and exclaim, these Israelites are angelic, and the service of these creatures is only with fire. And from the frightfulness of Israel in the wilderness, terror and trembling would befall the other nations. It is this idea that is written in the verse, fear and terror will befall them in Exodus fifteen sixteen. And they say in the Hebrew, it's not written in past tense, like fear and terror befell them. It's written in the future tense. Fear and terror will befall them from now and onward. In other words, when we are obedient, when we remain in the presence of Adonai and let him cover us in the cloud, bring his presence down and envelop us, when we're not doing sick stuff, violating his word, we're not doing leprous stuff, violating his word if we'll be obedient to him and to love him, we are absolutely terrifying. The nations think Rahab tells them this years later. They find out how terrifying they were. And that's what we need to understand. When we're keeping the Torah with the proper attitude, with the proper heart, we're terrifying. The nations are looking at us. We're terrifying because they can't touch us. The only thing they could ever do is destroy the body. They can't touch our souls. They can't touch our spirit. That is out of reach for them because we're in the, the palm of Yeshua's hand. He says, nobody's going to snatch you out of my hand. They could take your body, but I'll just give it back to you in better shape if they do. What a deal. But this prophecy has to do with the service of fire and the mishkan. Because just imagine this. You got a pillar of fire that's, that's leading the Israelites through the wilderness. You have the altar even though it's covered, it's still smoking because the fire never goes out. It's a celestial fire. It was supernaturally lit, never goes out. You say, well, how could the cover be on it and not be burned? I don't know, (laughs) but I would love to see it because imagine what the nation's watching them go through the wilderness because they're not all alone out in the wilderness. It's an interstate highway for caravans. It's part of the ancient spice route. So they they weren't completely away from people. There just weren't a lot of settled cities. You couldn't sustain that. But definitely traffic. There's people watching. Imagine them being up on a mountain or something and looking down at an Israelite encampment like Bilam had to do this week in the Torah portion and witnessing the fire service, the smoke, this, this pillar of fire. Uh, imagine when it settles down, the fire settles down. There's got this altar that's already smoking without being lit. You've got water that will just gush out of a rock. And remember, a river in Hebrew, it means something burning and shining. So you've got all this water just gushing out of this rock that follows them. And it looks like fire coming out of the rock. It's water, but it's fire. And they say that when the water would come out of this rock, it was so strong. This is also in the Psalms, where it talks about the, you know, the rivers and the streams that that came from the rock, but they say it would draw the boundaries around the tribes of Israel. So they didn't have to, you know, hike a long way to go get a bucket of water. No, the water came and it defined their boundaries. So they say if you had to cross from one territory to the other, from this tribe to this tribe, that you would have to, you know, wade through the water in order to get into someone's territory. you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.